Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Uh, we have an absolute honor of talking with the former top 10 player and Olympic silver medalist, Tim Mayotte. Uh, not sure I'm qualified to introduce him, but, you know, for those of you who are young, he was a perennial top 10 player, reached Wimbledon quarterfinals more than five times, won the Paris Masters, won Miami, which was known as Lipton back then, and uh, a pretty good servant volleyer back in the day. Welcome, Tim. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. No, no, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a gold conversation for anyone who tunes into this podcast. So this is a very standard question I ask everyone. I know you are in the same era as John McEnroe and Brad Gilbert. Uh, what was it growing up uh, as a tennis player, uh, a young tennis player in Massachusetts? Who were your heroes and how did you land up as a professional tennis player? Well, my heroes were very much the uh, the great Americans at that point and the Australians. So I clearly remember my brother and I, whether on the tennis court or on the ping pong table, imitating Rod Laver or Ken Rosewall, and then of course Stan Smith and Arthur Ashe were the were the big heroes. And, you know, it was a great time. They were uh, they were great models for us. And really, the first time I got really pumped about tennis was watching the 1971 final between Labor and Rosewall at uh, the Dallas tournament, which they actually played again, a great final in 72. And that was the first time when I really saw tennis that uh, made me want to play at that level. Hmm. Uh, so, again, you know, we, we'll go back and forth and because now you're still involved in tennis. So how was the tennis played? I know we've heard numerous times many players, the strings and Conditions have changed. Uh, what would he? Uh, how how different uh, would your game be if you had the modern, you know, polyester strings and these ultra modern rackets? Uh, if uh, you can try to comprehend. Well, it's very. Much, I think it's it's less to do with the rackets and more to do with the uh, the strings and the uh, development of movement patterns that that started to emerge. So the rackets when I started. On the tour, were uh, pretty much similar to to what players use now. They were the graphite, oversized, and uh, but of course, players at that point were just learning how to uh, combine the the benefits of a special kind of you know, movement that was uh, becoming more prevalent at that point. Really started by Connors and Bjorn Borg. And then, uh, then the strings about 12 years ago took things to a whole another level because of the capacity to generate spin. And, uh, it's really been those two things coming together that have, uh, have changed the game dramatically. Although I'm a, I'm a little bit, uh, suspicious of this term modern tennis. I don't really believe it's quite as different as people think it was, uh, or think it is. You know, to me, if you, I, I watch a lot of old film. I go back and watch Rod Laver play, and he was playing modern tennis uh, back in the early 60s for sure. Open stances, tremendous amounts of spin, uh, and I think that uh, the thing is that there just became a general, a larger awareness uh, teaching those skills that uh, saved time and also produced uh, more racket head speed. Hmm. Interesting. Uh you know, comment there about the skills. So, 
you think a guy like McEnroe, uh, if he was in this era, would he still play that kind of tennis? Because uh, nobody really comes to the net, you know, with the exception of Federer now and Misha Zverev and a few others who selectively come to the net. Uh, how much has the conditions, you know, stopped the, uh, I think, coaching foundations to focus on the net game? Because that's kind of a, an era that's gone by. I think it's less about coming to net and it's more about coming to net a little bit more selectively. If you look at the the numbers, actually, the conversion ratio when players come to net is, is as high as it was back when I was playing. The, the big difference is that uh, players have to pick their spots more. So certainly Nadal, Federer, uh, those guys are, are coming to net quite a bit. Uh, but they have to do it, so, um, you know, when they're in a more aggressive situation. So if you look at, say, for instance, Connors back in those days, he would come in when he was in the aggressive position, set up by great ground strokes. Hmm. And that's really similar to what's happening now. Um, to me, the big difference in what's happening now is, uh, and what's being demonstrated, obviously, particularly by Federer, is the capacity to take time away. Uh, to take the best angle to the ball, and that is still, as it was back in the day, still the cornerstone of, of uh, winning tennis. So you have the combination of great defense, but then the capacity to play super offense. And it's uh, that's the same combination as back then. It really, I really don't see that much difference, except the serve and volley is more difficult to execute on an ongoing basis. But when I work with juniors, I watch the middle-level pros. Uh, the big difference for them versus the top players is the capacity to move diagonally to the ball and to take the best possible angle to the shot to take time away. Hmm. I know you've been also involved with the USDA uh, a while back. So where do you think American tennis stands now? I mean, of course, we've had a great uh, history. And very recently, you know, say, when Sampras and uh, Agassi mm-hmm. era ended, it was a kind of a domination in the top ten. And even the era that, you know, had guys like yourself, uh, people were contending and going deep. And, of course, there were a lot of uh, men uh, who were winning, and also on the women's side. Uh, what has happened now? Is it just, you think, is, is it cyclical? What happened with this uh, era? Uh, that uh, the power has shifted to Europe, or is it the lack of adapting to play court tennis? What uh, are the few uh, points that you know you guys? I'm sure at the USTA might have you know drawn a lo- lo- lot of conclusions. What's causing this imbalance? The, I think the first thing certainly is the uh, fact that other countries uh, started to produce more and more good tennis players. It, I draw the line way, going way back to when the old Soviet Union started to prepare players to get involved in the Olympics, which for the first time happened in 88. So about six or eight years before that, they started to prep players, um, and you saw a whole slew of great uh, men, but particularly Russian women. And that uh, that excitement about the sport spread to a number of other countries, uh, particularly, obviously, the Slavic countries. And so there you were drawing up a whole new pool of athletes, you know, something similar to, let's say, what's uh, going on in the NBA with players coming from Croatia and Serbia and uh, obviously some other uh, Eastern European nations. Mm-hmm. So you've got that big factor. 
And then the other factor is, uh, in my mind, that the coaching hasn't adopted to um, to really what has to be a, a very sophisticated approach to how do you develop a great player or a few players today. And uh, so I've been vocal and taken some heat for being vocal, but mm-hmm. if you look at every top American male in the last, uh, let's say, since Roddick, they've had a pretty significant technical flaw that uh, has hampered them. So if you go Roddick, Steve Johnson, um, you know, Ryan Harrison, uh, and obviously today up to Jack Sock, the uh, the backhand has been a particular um, incident or, or problem. And if you look at players like, you know, TFO, whose forehand is, is certainly compromised. But I think what you have to understand on top of that, and I'm actually writing about this in my book, uh, which is going to be called the framework, is that poor technique on one side also compromises movement and recovery. So when you have uh, a substandard shot, the problems are exacerbated, particularly over three to five sets, because the having a bad shot, let's say like Jeff, uh, Jack Sock's backhand, also means that he moves poorly to the shot and then coming out, so then he hits a substandard shot. But uh, more importantly, he his recovery out of that technically poor shot is slower. So his rhythm and his timing and his explosiveness as he recovers to the next shot is, is let's say, two inches less potential coverage. I mean, that's too simplistic an answer, but mm-hmm. let's say he's a little bit slower coming out of that out of that shot. And then over, particularly over three out of five sets, that adds up. Let's say he loses six points over the course of that time because of a bad backhand or more. Then he's just not able to hang in with the best players. And that's the reality of the situation. And whether it's Steve Johnson hitting only slices or Ryan Harrison not accelerating his hip through the backhand, it's uh, the the movement along with the shot are compromised. So then what players tend to do is they hit too many forehands. Mm. <laughs> and I, I can't exactly explain why this has been such an epidemic in, in men's mm-hmm. tennis, but it, it certainly uh, is the case. And those guys, I'm not saying they would be world beaters, mm. um, but to me they would certainly all be ranked higher than uh, than they are at the current point. And then you've got a a cascading effect. So if you don't have great American men, then that doesn't uh, light up the dreams of other up-and-coming American players. And then then the whole thing uh, kind of... Maybe that's definitely definitely the case in the Serena and Venus. So I guess uh, this generation of Sloan and Madison Keys uh, is likely to have more success than before. Actually, we see Jack Soccer... You know, someone else, uh, Taylor Fritz, someone else, uh, Riley Pelka contending for a big title. Yeah, I think that the, that keeps the whole cycle going. Just in the mm-hmm. way that I wanted to play like Stan Smith or Arthur Ashe, uh, the, it's, it's very difficult, but uh, very palpable that when a great player comes along, it, mm-hmm. it lights up the excitement of, uh, of everybody else and behind it. Now, I do think we have a great, 
the USDA yeah, has done a nice a nice job in getting everybody you know pumped up to try to produce the next great American man. I just think uh, mm. we have a lot of good athletes now. I think they just need to be trained in a more sophisticated fashion. No, those those, those are very insightful answers, and I learned quite a lot already. And but I'm going to still take a deeper dive and just throw in some of the other doubts that I have. I've noticed uh, the backhand side that you pointed out. Uh, there's a certain uh, element. I think besides Marty Fish, there haven't been many. I don't want to be impolite, but many, you know, easy on the eye backhand strokes like a Safin or an Albandian or a Ferrero. And now, of course, Djokovic is ridiculous with his flexibility. Uh, most of our guys, I think it's, uh, it's, it's like a, you know, extended baseball swing or, or something that's, you know, and maybe that's where you're going, you know, the fundamentally the training, uh, starts or, and then the other part, uh, I want to add to this question is, uh, now I know USG is focusing on clay. I read a long time ago that clay kind of teaches you these movements at a very young age, and your lower body kind of responds in a more flexible way. Uh, does that make sense to you, or is, is that, uh, you know, does it tie up in the overall big picture? Uh, I think that the, and I can't speak to what's going on now at the USDA, but I know during my uh, time there, I was there for about two years, there was a, a sense that somehow just competing on clay was going to be a panacea. Uh, just in the way that they think that training kids with uh, orange balls and red balls is going to somehow fix technique. That's just false. The mastering of every very sophisticated skill that goes into producing a full, uh, equip, fully equipped player to the top is, in my mind, not happening, or at least it wasn't when I was happening. Now, let's talk about the backhand, for instance. So there's two elements that go into what differentiates, or there's another number, a number of elements, but there's a few things to consider. Uh, and why, let's say, Djokovic or Nalbandian has a better backhand than our players. So the one thing is the is the way, the superior way in which those great players push out of the unit turn. So. There's much more initial rotation in, let's say, Djokovic's backhand than there is in any of the American players. So if you look at Roddick, for instance, he pushes out, but he doesn't fully rotate. So that means that his initial first step to the ball both doesn't have power, but it also doesn't have the rhythmic movement that's required to execute a backhand like a Djokovic. Now, that might seem kind of arcane, but in fact, it's that's the reality. I've studied it very closely. Uh, and then, so then, let's say a guy like Jack Sock, because he doesn't rotate fully enough, then his first step or two are compromised. And at the same time, his racket is not prepared. So then when he flows into the shot, there's no uh, real uh, effective trans transfer of energy in a, in a flowing, rhythmic fashion. Then the second thing is a little bit more what you're talking about, which is the the fact that the the hip flexibility is not developed early. So if you look at Steve Johnson's backhand, for instance, when he tries when he does try to hit a topspin backhand, there's no use of the back leg and hip rotation to create that nice long flowing swing that you recognize easily with actually most of the players in the top ten. So if you look at Ryan Harrison, for instance, he suffers from both of those problems where his initial turn is not adequate and then there's no rhythmic movement and then also there's no 
ability to transfer the energy into the uh, into the shot via the hip. Now, the whole issue, uh, question of clay is a little bit more complicated. So at the very highest end, the players, uh, again, I talk about this in my book, the best players enjoy, whether on hard court or on clay, very uh, ordered and smooth acceleration and deacceleration into the shot with their movement. Now, clay helps that because the sliding action encourages it a smooth sliding that uh, works as that type of deacceleration that then the ener- energy is transferred into the shot. It, uh, but it has still has to be taught in a very uh, sophisticated way to get the kind of benefit that, let's say, the Europeans or the South Americans have. And if you look at our players, they don't do that. They just it, it, the movement is much more lumbering, and uh, the, there's no focus on the, or there's not as much focus as there should be on smooth acceleration and deacceleration. Hmm. So whether it's on hard court or whether it's on clay, you still have to focus on those particular elements. Now I think a lot of people at USDA would say, well, you can't really teach that smoothness. I, I disagree. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Of it. I'm sure the template has been revised, like you said, uh, to you know stay relevant uh, with the South Americans and Europeans. Uh, uh, I know the you know this is a great topic. Let's uh, do a quick switch. I, I think if I uh, studied right, you were on your playing days were on the player council as right. well, right? So how did yes, that? I was. I was the president of the player council for a year, and then I was also six years on the ATP board. As okay. a player representative. Right. Yep. So, how does the, that role work, and what are the processes? I'm, I'm sure a lot must have changed, but uh, lately, you know, uh, in Australian Open, Djokovic uh, has talked about uh, some stuff for players, and you know, they are insinuating it could be a players' union. How does that whole uh, exercise works, and is it just players only when you were involved, or the ATP you were closely with? Just an insight for our audience. So the the players themselves elect uh, a tour board, I mean, excuse me, a player council um, that represents the players' interests in their partnership with the tournament directors. Now, the tournament directors uh, run all the tournaments except for the Grand Slams. That's a different, uh, different organization. And the uh, – are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. So the players rep, uh, have the player council, which is represented. There's a, I don't know how it is now, but there was one player in the top 10, one player in 10 to 20, doubles players, and so on. And then the player council makes recommendations to the player representatives on the tour board. So the player council reviews all the issues from prize money distribution to rule changes, to negotiating contracts, to tournament changes. Uh, let's say a tournament wants to move from one spot to the other. Hmm. Then the, the three members of the tour board on the player side negotiate with the tournament directors. And now that's just for the ATP tournaments. Then the, the Grand Slams run themselves, so they're totally separate. So that makes it very complicated. And but what's what's happened is that, and what Djokovic and Dahl want to uh, talk about, or Federer, 
is that the Grand Slams make a tremendous, tremendous amount of money, only a fraction of which is shared with the players. So let's say the U.S. Open makes a $200 million profit every year, and the prize money is at $4 million. Hmm. Um, then you're talking about a huge, uh, huge gap, yeah. of money that, that's not going to the players. And that's what they're talking about. And I yeah. think they, you know, they have a very strong case hmm. because, uh, these organizations, particularly the top, uh, the four slams are making extraordinary amounts of money. Hmm. And the players are only getting a, a piece of that, a tiny piece of that. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Another interesting development is, uh, you know, that's going to be in practice next year is what you guys used to play with 16th seed. Now, you think a lot of players will embrace that? And uh, as someone who's watching the tennis now, do you embrace that change? you think that could mix it up? Or is that a step back? I like it for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first one is the obvious one, which is that players... Uh, or the tournament enjoys some really marquee matches in the first round, almost always. And so you're going to see some somebody 17, 18, 19, 20 in the first round playing a great player. So I love that because it adds uh, that wild card feeling. And there's an initial excitement uh, where you could get a, a great match early on. It also, in my experience, the best players are most vulnerable in the first round or two. Yeah. So uh, you you might see some upsets in those early matches, and I just think that's great for tennis. The second thing that I love is that it forces the players to, uh, let's say, between 10 and 20, uh, 25, to play particularly hard because they know they desperately want to get seated at the slams. So it really puts the onus on them to to play really hard and earn that spot. Mm. Uh, so the, I used to go through this every year in which I wanted to get seated particularly at Wimbledon. And so I knew that uh, I was going to have to play my butt off to get that, get that let's say, 12 seed or 10 mm. seed or and I love that intensity that it adds to the game. Uh, and the sub question this conversation has been doing circles in you know most tennis forums. Uh, I'm of the belief that you know as great the big four are, which you know, no denying, uh, this era is slightly inflated because of the same 16 versus 32 seed. There's more of a cushion, and like you said, as a you know top players may be a little susceptible to a loss in the first few matches, but once they have a few matches under the belt. Uh, they are uh, they are cruising, and also for someone like a Becker or you know like a Staffan, how you know these guys go through or to Chang, it's impossible to beat basically five seeded players if you are ranked below 32 to you know go deep. Your thoughts? Uh, I disagree because to me the these guys who are the best right now are basically technically and mentally far superior to anybody else. So as I look at the current crop of next-gen players, that they're calling them, or the players in the, uh, at, let's say, as the top four started to come in, they're just not as good players. <laughs> it's, hmm. I hate to be as... Uh, we are in an extraordinary era when we're having three and, let's say, top three uh, with Djokovic and Nadal Federer 
of the greatest champions of all time who are competing against each other in their peaks. This is just uh, it's it's like Borg, Connors, and McEnroe, except that the era is extended uh, dramatically because all three have enjoyed uh, lengthy careers. So, and then you throw Murray in there and Warenka, Delpo, uh, and now a little bit of a chillage, and you've got the, um, you know, makings of just fantastic setup. But there's still nobody on the horizon that looks nearly as good to me as an all-around tennis player uh, as those top three. There's just, no, there's just nobody yeah, close. Definitely not denying their greatness at all, but I, yeah, I, I always think also another factor that could be causing this is because there's lack of fights that play back in the day when you guys were playing. There were a lot of tournaments, like, uh, I know Miami, which was called Lipton, was best of fights throughout. And then, uh, mm-hmm. uh, WCT tennis and a lot of other tournaments had best of five set finals. So that's again probably a little foreign mindset. Uh, you know, when that, is that the reason why some of these guys are, not making the second week because they always, you know, uh, get locked into these five-set battles. Uh, they don't survive. If they do survive, there's not much uh, left in the tank uh, because the game has become increasingly mm-hmm. physical. Uh, I don't. I don't really see the same things the same way. Uh, I, I would also think that these guys are better these top three because the surfaces have gotten more and more similar. So back in my day, the Wimbledon was just crazy low bouncing. And uh, it really very much favored the attacking players. So you got more mix, more upsets than um, I think that you get now because the Conditions were significantly different. Hmm. Uh, so the skill set, you know, there was some talk about the Australian being a little bit faster or a little different. But but back in the day, the well, the day I don't like that term, but my day, the change in the conditions were dramatic. So, for instance, the balls that we used at the French, you know, in my early days were Pirelli sometimes tree-torn, and they would alternate those with the pen balls. So when you get an American, let's say a Connors, going in and playing against a really good clay quarter with a tree-torn ball, (laughs) you're talking Hmm. about real specialization, where now every tournament is getting much, much more similar in the speed. The conditions are getting more controlled. Uh, another example would be, let's say, at Wimbledon, the indoor courts, meaning uh, center court and uh, grandstand, played significantly different than the outside courts. Hmm. So you had a whole wide variety of issues that demanded a, a tremendous skill set across uh, very different surfaces. And... Uh, now Wimbledon, you know, the ball's bouncing up. It looks like a clay court match. Hmm. So you right, need so to go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, that's all. Okay. No, no. So uh, no, we are pressing for time. So uh, I want to throw in one current question. You know, as great as Federer yeah. is for tennis, uh, I'm sure you followed uh, the, the semi-controversy surrounding uh, his scheduling night matches and then the final mm-hmm. being indoors. 
uh, Roderick chipped in a few days ago on Twitter saying, let's not pretend it's not a business and the longer Roger is there. Uh, how do you see if you were a fellow, fellow player? Is, is that, you know, do you think there's resentment against, amongst other players or they kind of accept this the package uh, of the game that, you know, he is the face of tennis and uh, it's totally okay to uh, TV networks to request him on most prime time slots or how would you see that if you were still on the ATP? I, I would be uh, quietly upset, but also understanding that that he uh, he sells the tickets and uh, he makes so much happen that helps the players. So, it, but it was the same. It was the same back then. The, the top players had much more pull in deciding when they played. There is no question about that. They just, hmm. That's just always been the case since since tennis has been, uh, you know, a business. And it doesn't really upset me because the reality is you're still on a court that is uh, a tennis court. And the conditions are not as such that Roger is being given the match. I mean, he's, he's winning these matches. And he's winning them easily. So... That doesn't really upset me. I, I can imagine, let's say, a Nadal or a, somebody who's close being a little bit more upset. But uh, mm. I don't see the favoritism in a fashion that really uh, deserves any kind of real outrage. Okay. All right. Thanks for the chat, Tim. I know we're pressing right. for time, but I think we got in a lot of questions, and uh, it was an honor speaking with you. And uh, hopefully, yeah, you know, really down the great. road, you know, we can yeah, uh, reach out anytime. And I sure, really yeah. appreciate it. And I'll make we'll a plug for my book, which uh, hopefully will come out pretty soon. Yeah, we, yeah maybe when you, you release the book, we can you know, have you back and you know, we can do a plug-in for the book as well. That'd be great. Thanks for all you do for the game. No, thank you. <laughs>